Hello, Chicago and New York City listeners and listeners from other cities. I'm excited to share that 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories has a couple of live storytelling shows in mid-October. On Saturday, October 12th at 4 p.m., our show returns to Manhattan at the Caveat as part of the third annual Speak Up, Rise Up Festival. Then Thursday, October 17th, 80 Minutes Around the World returns to the Wilmot Theater in Chicago. If you've loved our stories on this podcast, please come out and support our storytellers as they pour their hearts out on stage. For information on tickets, please visit our Facebook page or website. You can also find more information on New York City's Speak Up Rise Up Festival by going to speakupriseup.com. And now, here's our season one finale. From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories Storytelling Show, this is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez. Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies, where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. Straddled between two worlds, what is the experience of those born in the U.S. to immigrant parents, especially when differences in language and culture becomes a barrier to mutual understanding and communicating expectations? In this episode, New York City-based storyteller Annie Tan shares her story of the delicate balance between meeting her immigrant parents' expectations and finding her own way. First, Here's Annie's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories on September 8, 2018 at the Caveat in Manhattan. So I'm 29 years old, and I am proud to say that as of two months ago, I moved out of my parents' apartment! I grew up a few blocks away from here, like a 10-minute walk away from here. Um, and I was so excited. I found this studio. Uh, it is a 10-minute walk from work because I am a fully employed millennial. Look at that. And I, it's a 10-minute walk from work. It's a beautiful studio. Uh, some of you have seen it. Um, and the landlady who's Chinese, and I'm Chinese too, she loved that You know, I was like a working woman, and she lowered the rent $100 because she wanted me there, right? So I should be really happy, right? I should have been really happy at the end of July that I was moving out. But I was anxious. You know, I was shaking. Like, I didn't go to bed. Like, I could not sleep. I was distracting myself with my boyfriend and my friends and doing a ton of work because my parents didn't want me to move out. My parents did not approve at all about this apartment and they had been giving me the silent treatment. And I was just trying to be so good for them, but I was like, will they ever approve of this place? I walked on eggshells in front of my parents for my whole life. My parents immigrated to America, and uh, they uh, moved to Chinatown here, just like a 10-minute walk away from here. They had me, and from the start, they wanted me to learn English, to go to school, to be a good 
like person and to get work, get married, marry a nice Chinese boyfriend, and uh, you know, respect the family. Um, and I didn't know all of that yet. That took a lot of years to learn because we shared a different culture. There, they have a very strict Chinese culture, right? And I am learning the American culture. I'm trying to be a good daughter. I'm trying to like help translate mail as soon as I learn how to read and uh, sign up for Medicaid, fill out the Medicaid applications and the public housing applications and going to Pathmark and Rite Aid and helping my mom translate at Rite Aid and getting the rain checks because you only buy things when they're on sale when you're a poor Chinese immigrant. Um, and I also didn't understand my parents because they spoke a different language. They speak Cantonese and Toysanese in particular. And my Cantonese and Toysanese is terrible because they just didn't speak to us very often. They didn't say very much to us. The only things they would talk about was food. Right? So they would say, oh, leo okay, here's the soy sauce chicken, here's the siu mai, which my mom uh, made for me every day for a year when I was eight years old because she knew I loved it so much and I got sick of it. Um, there's fanchi, which is like these uh, yam leaves that she would make for me. Um, so basically, the only things I knew was food because they would always say, like we had nothing to eat in China. And we starved, and you need to eat everything on this plate, right? <laughs> um, so I did, because I was trying to make them happy. I got straight A's as a kid. And when I went to college, I actually only applied to schools in New York City because I wanted to be close by. I ended up staying on this island, of course, but I did dorm because my college uh, provided dorming. Uh, so that's when the phone calls started, right, when I was living up there. So every day, my dad would call me at 8.30 or 9.30, and he would call and say, Lisa, Maya, have you eaten yet? And I'd be like, yeah. He's like, Lisa, Maya, what'd you eat? And I was like, okay, I, I'm eating chicken, but it'd be like, you know, chicken nuggets because I didn't know how to say a fried and battered chicken nuggets. So I'd just say, guy, chicken. Or like, I didn't know how to say hummus. Or like, <laughs> like what's a Chinese person going to do with hummus, right? <laughs> um, but he would just, all he would talk about was this food, right? And I'd be like, Dad, like, you call me every day for 30 seconds to a minute to talk to me about food. But I hated these phone calls because they reminded me every day that I was a juksing, right? So juksing in Cantonese mean, like, literally means hollowed out bamboo shoot. Which means that, like, when you're an American-born Chinese like me in ABC, that means you are an empty shell of a Chinese person, right? A juxing. That's literally what uh, my parents call me, right? Um, and so, like, all these phone calls just remind me every time how bad my Cantonese is. If I was going to, like, a movie theater, I'd say the place where they play the movies because I didn't know how to say movie theater. Or the place with the sand and water because I didn't know how to say beach, it was just a constant reminder that I just didn't know my parents. I didn't understand them, and I didn't understand their language. Um, and this really contrasted to when I was living in Chicago. So I lived in Chicago for five years after college, and I was in a relationship with a white man named Will. And I could talk to his parents about everything because unlike my parents, I shared the same language with his parents, his white parents, 
I could tell him about my hopes and dreams. I could tell his parents about my philosophy on life, what I wanted to do, my teacher union activism, how I wanted to fight for Asian American activism. And I couldn't tell all of that to my parents because I didn't know how to say union in Chinese, you know? And like, it made me feel so terrible. Like his parents, every time he and his parents like left each other, they always said, I love you. And they always said, I love you too. And I never heard that from my parents. To this day, my parents have never said, I love you to me, right? But I wanted that. I wanted that relationship so badly from my parents. I wanted to be more honest with them, so I started learning how to say gongwei, which is union, because I'm working with the teacher's union, right? I'm working with Asian people, right, in Asian American activism. I, like, start Googling the words, and I'm going to, like, figure out how to talk to my parents. And I tell my parents one Thanksgiving three years ago, uh, my dad calls. He's like, have you eaten yet? I was like, I'm actually at my boyfriend's uh, family's house right now for Thanksgiving. I'm celebrating Thanksgiving with them. Now, Chinese people, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving, right? But my dad says, well, you're at his house. You're at his parents' house. Why aren't you with your parents in New York City? And then he hung up the phone. Now, this guy has called me straight every day at this point for seven years at 9.30, right? And that, after that day, he didn't call me for weeks. He was so heartbroken that I would spend that time with a white family because he didn't want me with someone who couldn't speak the language, that didn't understand Chinese culture. And that hurt. The next week, my mom called me while I was at the museum, and she said, she begged me. She was like, Annie, please don't marry this guy. No, like, I was even going to marry him. I'm just going to his house for Thanksgiving, right? But she begs me, please don't marry him. And I said, Mom, if I did everything that you asked me to do, I could never live my life. But they didn't talk to me for weeks, and um, eventually it thawed uh, when I came back for Christmas vacation. But I knew there was this tension, this rift between us that I couldn't live with anymore. A few months later, I decided I need to move back to New York. Um, And I told my boyfriend at the time, and he started looking for work, and he found his dream job in San Diego, and we realized we're at a fork. This is not going to work. Um, it did not help that my parents hated him, you know. <laughs> it didn't, yeah. Um, so I moved home to New York two years ago, and, you know, things are going okay. Like, I'm learning things. Like, I start asking my mom questions. Like, I learned my mom was a cow and pig farmer for nine years in China. Like, and I learned just different things. Like, my mom and dad, like, met w- while working together. My mom would load up a rickshaw, and my dad would push the materials on a rickshaw. Like, I learned things about them that I'd never had before. But their expectations on me just mounted. They would be like, be home by 10 o'clock. And I was like, I'm 29 years old. I'm not coming home at 10 o'clock. And be like, why? And it would be this big mess. And I would get mad at them so often, and they would get mad at me so often. I, I just wanted this relationship with them. And I, I just didn't understand what I needed. Um, and I 
sought out therapists and I found a Chinese American therapist. Thank goodness for her. Um, she just understood everything. She's like, she understood how like parents don't say I love you, how we talk about food all the time, right? But at one point in July, she asked me, Annie, why are you seeking out your parents' approval so badly? Why do you need their approval so much? And I just, I just started crying. Um, and I told her, I know one day there will be something I do that will disappoint them, and they're going to disown me, and they will never talk to me again. And at least if I have this time with them now that I'm living at home, then... You know, I will have this time and I will not think of them as monsters for the rest of my life. My therapist looked at me and she said, Annie, there's a wound there. There's a fly there too. <laughs> um, there's a wound there and you have to acknowledge the wound so that it can heal. Four days later, I start looking for apartments because I realized that if I am the one who's doing the thing they disapprove of, then I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in control. And also probably living together is not the best thing for us because we are constantly going to not meet each other's expectations, right? Um, so four days after that therapy appointment, I look for apartments. The next day after that, I find the studio. The next day after that, I got approved. And then three days after that, I signed the lease. So like, it was nine days. Nine days after that therapy appointment, I signed that lease. Um, and so I start moving things in. I don't have a car. I live 10 minutes away, you know, a 10-minute walk. So my I told my parents about this place, and they spent all together an hour saying, don't move, save money, be here, translate mail for us. You're a bad daughter, right? Um, and, and I was like, I have to move because... In my mind, this is the only way to save our relationship, for me to actualize and be my own person outside of you, but also be with you and have a relationship with you. Um, so I go, uh, I take every single day for maybe two weeks, I carry the biggest luggage I can, stuff clothes into it, waddle it down the fifth floor walk-up apartment, wheel it to Grand Street Station, waddle it down two more flights to the stairs, take the D train to the R train to Bay Ridge Avenue, walk it up the stairs, wheel it to my new apartment, right? And then back with an empty suitcase and do that all over again because they're refusing to help me and they're giving me the silent treatment, right? Um, and then one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this work. We are going to have dinner every week. I'm going to keep taking these Cantonese classes that I've been taking so I can talk to you. Like, I'm not even, like, a bad daughter. Like, I'm dating a Chinese guy right there. Like, and, like, you know, like, I, <laughs> like, all together, like, I'm a pretty good daughter, I would say. I send home money. Like, I, I do things. I help out around, you know, all of it, right? So I'm like, Mom and Dad, like, I'm coming home for dinner tonight, right? Like, after having moved out. And I come home. And my mom's glaring at my, me and my dad's still giving me the silent treatment. And I walk into my bedroom, which is untouched. And there are these bowls and plates on the floor, right? And a mom just comes in and says, your dad cleaned all these plates for you. And then we have dinner and my mom's like, here's more CEO, guy soy sauce chicken for you to take home, 
right? Um, and a few days after that, I come home with just my dad, and he gives me the silent treatment for like 20 minutes. And then I'm saying I'm about to leave the house, and my dad goes, You want this cabbage? <laughs> and he's like, I have apples too. So he takes out some apples from the fridge. And he's like, oh, I also have a cauliflower. So he gives me a cauliflower. So now, <laughs> now I'm having this tote bag of just produce. I'm like, thank you, dad. <laughs> right? And I remembered a few years ago, back when me and my dad were fighting. And I told my dad, I love you. And my dad told me back, you don't say I love you. That's not what you do. You show it. And I realized all those years that they'd been calling me and asking me about food, that was their way of showing it, you know? He would always say, oh, uh, you have to eat meat for protein. You need to buy vegetables, right? Uh, because if he knew that I had all the vegetables and protein I needed, if he knew I was getting enough sleep, right, then he knew I was okay even though I was away. That's how I knew, like, even though they've never said it, my parents do love me. And so I'm going to fight as hard as I can to see them. In fact, I'm going home for dinner on Monday. Thank you. Here's Annie and I in Brooklyn, where Annie shares her experience growing up as Chinese-American and what it takes to maintaining a strong, loving relationship with her immigrant parents. Let's talk about Thanksgiving. There's something about that scene, right? right. It's, it's like the... Like, like I'm connecting with someone else's family, right? Mm-hmm. That, like... It was, it was hard being in that relationship because... I just realized what I could have had mm. had like I we both I guess attempted like it's not that I lost anything my family and my relationship is very full but there is a language barrier and there are things in Cantonese and Toysanese that I don't understand and they don't understand some of the ways I think in English you know and mm-hmm. like I, sometimes I'll like directly translate an idiom or something from English to Cantonese and they'll be like what are you talking about right, right, you right. know or uh, there's gonna there, there's a huge importance of something in English culture like or like American culture like I don't know like a turkey or something and just literally trying to translate but then also culturally and emotionally uh, trying to translate what I'm actually saying as a message has been a huge piece of you know, the distance I feel with my parents. In my family, um, my grandfather actually, on my mother's side, um, he passed away. He had a stroke right before Chinese New Year. Mm. And so in a way, right, my family and I, like or my mom's side of the family, we don't have, we don't have gatherings. Mm. And so we all have like this yearning for, family gatherings yeah right and that special this, connection this like closeness right yeah. exactly that special connection and it's funny when i was listening back to um my story just now 
I say, I say, I want that relationship and I don't Mm -hmm. even have to name it that we're all yearning for that closeness to the people that we're supposed to be close to. Right. And there were, there were a lot of friends in my life who don't have that closeness because, you know, they came out as queer, um, Mm -hmm. or gay or lesbian or as transsexual and, um, or they're doing something with their life that their parents don't agree with. And so they have totally either been disowned or disowned their parents, mm-hmm. you know? And like, as I'm like reflecting on the story, I know that is, that's very, very possible for all of us. And that some of us have to have chosen families only. And I, you know, thinking back on this story, I do want to fight to have my parents in my life because I don't want to let a cultural and linguistic distance separate us because mm-hmm. there is something that we both understand that isn't named mm-hmm. and I still can't quite name it you know but right. I, I do still want that closeness and the feeling of being understood and the feeling of belonging right with, even within my family um and because you know me moving out and me also doing lots of things that I do because I'm a human being and an activist and a teacher and an organizer and a storyteller. Um, you know, it's sometimes I feel like I have to push that limit so that I can see what's possible for us. And I think that's exactly what I did that. Like you can only see the consequence of your action once you've taken that action. Mm. And here it's like, no, I, I have to do this, you know, and this is this, you know, when I think of it now, it's like it seems so trivial or it seems like, oh, like a millennial should have moved out by now. But it's very different in Chinese culture than like yeah. the amount of closeness you're supposed to have. Um, for example, my older brother, um, you know, in traditional Chinese culture, uh, when he gets married and has kids, he's going to be expected to take care of my parents and mm-hmm. have that household of the grandparents and the son and then the grandkids, you know? Um, and so here in America, you know, we're trying to figure out our way of like, are we going to keep those Chinese traditions or are we going to do something different? Or is there even a third possibility that we are not even thinking of that's not Chinese and not American? In your story, you mentioned being worried about being disowned. Mm-hmm. Like how strong, I mean, because you, you also just said like, you know, you really have to fight for this, you know, this relationship. How true do you think that is? I think now I feel, I don't think it's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of know myself more that I, like I think through the course of the story, I realized that family is important to me. And I think part of the beginning of it is like, I'm taking it for granted because I'm failing at it, failing at speaking Chinese mm. and failing at coming home. And, you know, like, but also those are choices I'm making. You can't fail if you don't even try at all. Mm. But then, like, throughout the story, like, I'm, I'm scared to succeed, you know, in a way, because I'm like, oh, I'm actually trying now. What, what if I fail? Like, I, I, but if I, like, try, then there's a chance of failing. So now I'm scared of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried. I, I, I tried to like do something that would make them mad. Um, a small trivial thing. It's not like I went out and killed someone. Um, but um, 
in that act, it's okay. Like, well, like what will happen? And it's, it's corny, but love prevailed in this instance. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I hope they understand me enough to know that my choices aren't about them, that I am mm-hmm. not making choices in my life to spite them right, or right. to make them mad. I'm always going to make choices with them in mind, mm-hmm. you know, big life decisions with them in mind. And I was thinking too, like, you know, did I pick my Chinese boyfriend because of them? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think one, like I didn't want to date white people after my last relationship because I just felt like there wasn't a level of understanding of like the sense of alienation from American culture. Um, I also didn't know my boyfriend was Chinese when, you know, we went on our first date. There is that sense, like, I want to be with someone who gets that feeling of not belonging. Mm, yeah. Whether it's in your family or not in America. This disowning thing yeah. is, is something like a Chinese family just kind of, it's like a card. Yes. And it's, it, it's this idea, like, you feel like there's conditional love. Mm, like, yeah. You only get love if you do the right things. And that's what I thought for the longest time till the story, really, that I have to do everything perfectly in order to have my parents' love. And I'm happy to say that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm lucky. Like, that's pretty much what got me undisowned as well, that I came home for Christmas. And it, it was the right timing Right. And there is this sense of like, oh, wait, what am I going to do? And then they have to decide, am I going to let this fester through my life? And I actually told my dad that I was like, you can disown me. You can never speak to me again, but I will call you every day Mm. and you will have to make the choice of not answering the phone or not. You can do like I can bring my kids to you if I ever have kids. And of course, I'm doing this through tears. Um, Mm And I will have a life and I want you in it. And it's going to be your choice that I'm not in your life. But I will always fight for you. And I told him that. Mm. Um, And that helped it all, actually. I I didn't get to include that in the story. But it was really important for my dad to know that he was important. And that I wasn't just taking him for granted. I think for so long... He thought he probably thought his American kids like what were taking him for granted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think they've also learned to let go a little bit. That I think for a long time they took it personally. Like her life choice is reflective of what I did, and she's doing this to me. But that that's just not the case. I mm-hmm. like it's it's a growing pain for all of us. Me growing into adulthood, right? That he has to realize wait she has a life and I can't control her life like I think it's new terrain for all of us to try to figure out how are we going to be a family unit in a healthy way where we have our boundaries and that that's something I've been learning to to set my boundaries and be like I um I get to do things I am an unmarried Chinese woman (laughs) Uh, that gets to do things because here in America and here in a lot of places in the world, um, things are different. And that's something I fundamentally believe he didn't understand as I was growing up. And I think he's 
coming around to that idea. Um, I don't think it's necessarily like chi- just Chinese culture that does that. There's many, many cultures that do that. But unfortunately, Chinese culture is very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And depending on the level of, you know, wanting to hold on to your traditions that your family has, like it manifests in different ways. And I actually was reading a review of The Farewell, the movie with Aquafina. Someone wrote that uh, Chinese in America may be more strict in holding on to their traditions because they've lost something by moving to America and this uh, Asian American diaspora. Um, they might be more strict in America than they are in China where the world has changed and they've uh, shifted ideas of what uh, Chinese culture might look like based on just, just the changing world. Yeah, you're right. There's certain things that they are, I feel like they're really holding on to because they feel like this is what makes us Chinese. Right, right. And that there is something that's going to be lost if they lose that, mm-hmm. like if they don't do that, right? And I, I would do the same if I had to leave my home country that I'd lived in for my whole life and come to America, right? At this point, my parents actually um, no they they still have lived in china longer than they've been in america Mm. um and that's a lot on them Mm. that like my dad has only gone back to china once um since you know he moved to america my mom has not gone back to china um and so this idea of them wanting to keep something of theirs and not letting america take that away is it's kind of a very important idea for them. Just just the idea of expectations and what happens when expectations aren't met. How, how do we live in the society of like, I want something and I don't get it. Like, how do you respond, you know? Um, and you said like they take out the disowning card. But that manifests for all of us that Hmm. we're trying to navigate what these expectations even are in the first place. And it was so hard for me to understand that because I I didn't understand Chinese culture very much because I, you know, I would go to school and be taught by American teachers and an American middle class culture. Um, And then I'd go home and my parents would be very tired from working all day and my mom would be cooking and my dad would just want massages because he worked in construction and his back was killing him all the time um you know my brothers and I would massage his back uh and and that was our family time we didn't talk so Hmm. like when we were home the only noise you could really hear was from the tv which played American shows white suburban middle class America um and so there were certain things we did we did traditions like every month you would uh, burn incense and bow to your ancestors um, with foods that your ancestors liked um, and then we'd celebrate Chinese New Year um, and then we'd see relatives but those were the main things I understood about Chinese culture so to understand nuances of like I'm an unmarried Chinese girl like I'm not supposed to do X, Y, and Z things or I'm expected to marry into a nice Chinese family like those are all things I had to figure out over time and usually from friends like growing up 
um, who were all trying to figure this out together. So wading through expectations that I didn't even understand in mm. a language I didn't even understand, especially the nuances of Cantonese and Toysanese in itself was something and is something I'm still exploring right now. Um, and so like I have to constantly rem- remind myself like not to beat myself up for disappointing uh, expectations that I didn't even know about in the first place, right, right. you know? Um, and so this idea of being a good daughter, right? If you look at my record, like I am a pretty damn good daughter. You're a great daughter. <laughs> Especially, yeah, compared to me. Not that, not that we have to compare. <laughs> yeah, let's not compare because yeah. then, again, expectations that right, yeah, you yeah. didn't even know existed, yeah. right? Um, and you think to yourself, this is the way I have to live my life. Or if you don't break out those limits, you'll never know what's possible. And I think that's the big thing I learned in this story. And then also like going back to this idea of how people show love. People show love in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that existed through my whole life, right? And it wasn't just something that like pops out in the end or something like it's kind of expected that ending of like him bringing me the cabbage or giving me food, right? I think part of it, like, I think I had read the book, The Five Love Languages. Yes, like, I know that one. I, I was just quoting it the other day, actually. It's the best book. The Everyone best needs book. to read it. It's mm-hmm. useful, not just for like romantic relationships, but all the relationships in mm-hmm. your life, because some people don't like physical touch, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought as a Chinese woman growing up in a household where my parents didn't hug me that I didn't like physical touch, but I love physical touch. Like I love hugging my friends and showing that like as a manifestation of my love, but I didn't get to experience that as a kid because it wasn't like my parents and I were hugging each other um, or relatives and I were hugging each other besides maybe the kiss to my grandma's cheek every Mm -hmm. time I saw her. Opening up our minds to the idea that like there were different ways to love someone and and again it's, it's a piece of the cultural like misunderstandings that I had as a kid and the cultural distance that I felt that I didn't see all those signs throughout my life I just thought my dad's phone calls were annoyances right and I thought the food was like why are they like showering me with these meals like home-cooked meals every single day and that was my mom's way of showing she loved me mm-hmm. and that she wanted me to be healthy right um, my soul took that for granted. Coming back to immigration, right? Um, I think so many of us kids of immigrants feel like there's something we lost. There are some immigrants, you know, that feel like, oh, I have both cultures. I, I think, though, that's rare. I, I, I see much less people who are like, oh, I am both this and that hmm. and feel very comfortable in both, you know. Um, it's typically like you feel like you don't belong in either or you feel more Chinese than American or you feel more American than Chinese. Um, and I hate that binary. I think mm-hmm. you get to be both and you get to be whatever you want to be. Um, and that's why I'm taking Cantonese classes and trying to you know use the Chinese handwriting apps and 
um, using the Chinese dictionary apps to try to learn more um, and also learn how to cook Chinese foods while also cooking healthy American foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the sense that um, we feel distant from our families, like as kids of immigrants. And um, when people talk about kids of immigrants, it's always in like a deficit model that we lost something. Um, and I really hate that. I really hate that line of thinking because it makes it seem like we are missing something and we need to reclaim something or gain something back. Mm. But we are fully human. Right. Right. We're fully ourselves. Like, however we are right now, your worth is not in how much Cantonese you speak or how much food you're able to consume or cook. You know, you have value as a human being right here and now. And the importance of this show is that we're sharing all kinds of immigrant stories. And I feel like immigrants right now are being talked about in such a monolith that there is no way of like diversifying this conversation nationally that we're having about immigrants. You know, there's, you know, as I was mentioning, good daughter, bad daughter, good immigrant, bad immigrant. No, Hmm. I'm, I'm just a daughter. No, I'm just a kid of immigrants like what is like when when you make something so black and white you can't see the humanity in like what's actually there and you can't ever see the person in front of you as who they are and that creates that lack of belonging Mm. um which is why stories need to be told um especially by people of color immigrants um that have such rich lives mm-hmm. that shouldn't be seen as a deficit in any way. I love that because I, in a way we kind of straddle both cultures and, and in some ways we're like the interpreters or, you know, or something like we have a very specific, a very, um, va- like a value. There's this idea that I'm half Chinese or half American and, that's not true. I'm 100% Chinese and I'm 100% American. Mm. Um, and that I am not me if I weren't Chinese and I'm not me if I weren't American. Like, I would be a whole different person. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the way I'm speaking to you would be, and then the way I think about the world, like, would be completely different if I didn't have both those parts in me. Um, and also growing up working class and all the intersections of identity that I have. And, the importance of this story is that it's so layered in the ways that, you know, people are trying to come to their humanity um, and how we're trying to strive for connection when, you know, I frame the story as I have lost something, but that I always had it in front of me. I always had that relationship with my parents and it wasn't that I wasn't trying hard enough or that I wasn't Chinese enough, which is really what I felt like Mm. most of my life. Um, It was that I couldn't see it right in front of me. And like, because of that, I took for granted that I never would be close to them or that I literally would not be home, you know, and not be close to them. Um, But the relationship has always been there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think, the biggest lesson I've learned from this, that none none of this is that I've lost anything by being Chinese-American or being a kid of immigrants. Like, I see life in such a different way than a lot of human beings, and I'm very grateful for that, and I'm 
um, more kind, empathetic, courageous person for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one can take that away from me. And that is the fullness of that. I, there's no deficit in me. That was New York City-based special education teacher, activist, writer, and storyteller, Annie Tan. Annie has been featured in the New York Times, Edutopia, Huffington Post, and the Moth Radio Hour. Annie is working on a book about her family and the Asian American history. That concludes Season 1 of Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez podcast. Special thanks to Namisha Latva, Robin Beatty, David Hugh, Michelle Carlo, Jitesh Juggy, Kristen Rader, Martha Ruiz Padilla, Danny Forster, Alana Murphy, and Annie Tan, who made Season 1 of Immigration Stories podcast possible, and thanks to all our onstage storytellers. Nestor and I will be back in January 2020 with Season 2. In the meantime, please come out to support our live shows in Chicago and New York City. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website, NestorGomezStoryteller.com and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories Podcast is created, produced by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.